morning again, saints. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. That's the passage we're going to look at this morning that David so ably read. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Father, thank you again for your word. Your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. I pray, God, that now not only would you, by your spirit, reveal truth to our hearts, God, that you would deepen our conviction that this is indeed the word of God written. Increase our longing and our hunger for your word. Meet us in power and in comfort every time we exercise the discipline to read the Bible. And by it, Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape and conform us into the image of Christ and increase our hope and trust and love for him. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 11. Now, Acts chapter 11, strangely, comes right on the heels of chapter 10. That's right. What happened back in chapter 10? That was the saving of Cornelius and of his entire household. And do you remember what was notable about that? Cornelius and his household were the very first what to be saved? Say it out loud. Gentiles, that's right, non-Jews. People like you and me. In this passage, back in Acts chapter 10, we are seeing yet again people who are the least likely saved, born again, adopted into the family of God. You see, you have to transport yourself back to the context of this passage to get how profound that is. For the people of God, for the ethnically Jewish, there was an uncrossable chasm between them and the unwashed, unclean, ham-eating, filthy Gentiles. There was just no way in their mind that God's saving purposes could ever include someone like Cornelius and his household. And yet this is the trajectory of the book of Acts as we're moving through the earliest church. You'll remember back a couple of chapters ago, there was another highly unlikely man, saved, converted, born again. He was the Ethiopian eunuch. We then saw how the gospel spread, not only from the Ethiopian eunuch, but how the gospel then spread to the Samaritans. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you'll know that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, precisely because it was almost unthinkable to someone in Judea that these inbred, half-blooded Samaritans could ever be a part of God's good purposes, and yet this is what happens. The gospel is spreading by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. The gospel moves into Samaria, and many of them come to believe in Jesus Christ. They bow their knee, they repent, and they are saved. And now back in chapter 10, we're told that those things and those people which God has declared clean, let no one despise. You know, friends, before we even get into chapter 11, we have to put a very fine point on this. Because in this trajectory, in this pattern, we behold the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And if you can't see that, I want you to look at it from a different perspective. It is because of this comprehensive nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his reign and rule It is because the gospel here in Acts and ever since goes out to every tribe and every nation. The distinction is no longer by ethnicity or by birth. The distinction is for all of those who fear the Lord. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel because it includes people like me. And it includes people like you. And so we pick up in chapter 11 and look at verse 1. We see that the apostles, the brothers, were doing in part what the Lord Jesus Christ had instructed them to do before he ascended into heaven. They are taking the gospel to Judea. 
as they're going about their business, sharing the good news of Jesus in Judea on home turf, they hear news that over there in Caesarea, these Gentiles have heard the word of God and believed. Cornelius' house. You see, already this is surprising news at the very least for these apostles and brothers who are back in Judea. It was unsettling news. Look at verses 2 to 3. Peter returns from Caesarea to Jerusalem. He is, as it were, hauled up short. He's got to face the music. These guys who are known as the circumcision party, by the way, I think they need better PR. You're not going to get anyone to join that. The circumcision party, who were the religious snobs who were putting up barriers and distinctions where God had not put barriers and distinctions. That's who they were. These guys criticize Peter. They say to him, man, you ate with those guys? Like, that's disgusting. That's what he's, that's the criticism that Peter bears. And you know, friends, right off the onset of this passage, I want us to take note. We need to be very cautious when we bring criticism to bear. That's what we see here with the circumcision party. That the Lord God is doing something, and yet these guys, listen, these were not bad guys. These were religious guys. These were good guys. For goodness sake, they were the circumcision party. And, and they brought accusation and criticism to bear on what God was doing. We need to be very, very cautious when we are critical. Criticism is a cheap gift. I, um, for my entire life, I think that I am an optimistic person. I always see the glass as half full, not half empty. I always believe that things are going to work out in the end. I'm optimistic, and I've also always been content for my entire life. But I've noticed a troubling trend in my own heart and in my own soul, perhaps something that you can relate to. For a myriad of compounding reasons over the last three or four years, I found myself becoming cynical. I found that it's very easy for me to criticize and cast stones. While recognizing that it's all too easy to criticize, I want us to consider two things. Okay, the, the first one, criticism is itself a cheap gift. When you stand back and look at what someone else is doing and you just bring bald-faced criticism to bear against them, it might make you look smart, intelligent, insightful, but actually, at its core, it's worth little to nothing. Let me say it a different way. It's so much easier to criticize another person who's doing something than to actually do something, right? And so if you are a person who's doing something, you are bringing your conscientiousness, your resilience, your attention, your focus, your discipline, your drive, you're bringing all of that to bear on something, and someone who's doing nothing brings criticism upon you, what should you do? Well, I think in fairness, you receive that criticism. That's the first thing you do. And you say, yeah, but RD, it really stings when people criticize me. Well, there are probably two reasons why it stings, and that's why you should pay attention to it. If someone brings criticism to bear on you and it cuts a little too close to the bone, the first thing to consider is that maybe you have too much ego wrapped up in that thing that you're doing. That's why it hurts so bad when someone criticizes you. That's why it stings. A second reason is that maybe what they are saying has a grain of truth. And although it might be unfair criticism, although it might be unjust, although they might be trying to score points off you in a cheap way, if you really want what's best for you and for your endeavor, you should listen to their criticism and 
and hear if there's any truth to it and hear if you are overly invested in your ego in what you're doing. I heard someone recently say that to be truly wise is to not let criticism go to your heart and don't let praise go to your head. So how did Peter receive this criticism? Well, I'd suggest to you that Peter was able to deal with criticism that he faced regularly from powerful religious elite. Because for Peter, he had made his life very, very simple. He looked at his life as though he was just simply working at the master's behest. Right? He, he backed all of the ego out of it. So when they bring criticism to bear, Peter can shoulder it because he's like, yeah, that's not actually personally attacking me. You fools are attacking God. Good luck with that. Right? That's how he can bear criticism. I'd suggest that we ought to do the same. I want to look also at how this um, passage can be abused or misused. Now, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into any depth, but Scripture repeats it, so I just want to make this one point. Far too often, people use this passage that we're looking at here in verses 1 to 18, and they abuse it. They say things like, well, here you see God deconstructing Peter's preconceived notions about what is holy and what is not holy. And therefore, now, any time that a Christian says that something is good and something is bad, they are falling into the trap of folly. Have you ever heard that argument? That's not how this passage can be rightly used. Instead, as Christian men and women, we see a pattern here that we need to always go as far as God's word, but never further than God's word. And so what we see in this account back in chapter 10 and repeated here in the retelling in chapter 11 is that God has specifically rescinded the dietary laws and restrictions. Therefore, he's saying, do not call unclean what I have now declared to be clean. We have to go as far as God's word, but we cannot go beyond God's word. There is no place in scripture where God rescinds moral law. There is no place in scripture where God calls clean sexual perversion and sin. So don't misuse this passage. Verse 3. They say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order. So they haul Peter up short, right? They criticize him. They say, how is this? And Peter, he's not flustered. Do you see that in the text? He's like, well, you guys are asking how it is. Let me tell you how it is. And it says he explained it to them in order. Here we see um, a picture of confidence that's rooted not in self, not in ego, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Christian man and woman, for more of that in the church. And for more of that in our own lives. We need to, like Peter... Come to this place where we are deeply convinced that what's contained in Scripture, even the moral things that we wished weren't there because they make us unpopular at work, that all of those things are true. They are God's word. They are God's best for human flourishing. It's become clear to me over the last little while that um, Christian men and women who espouse a biblical worldview, a biblical sexuality, a biblical position on marriage, or whatever the case may be, we are often accused of being heavy-handed. You know, 
people who are opposed to us will say things like, why are you so busy telling other people what they should and shouldn't do with their lives? And it's positioned like we're just a bunch of fuddy-duddies who don't want people to have fun. But in fact, if we, like Peter, believe that we are just working at the Lord God's behest, this truly is God's word, it truly is what's best for human flourishing, then for us, it's not about telling people what to do and what not to do. A biblical worldview, one that's shaped by Scripture, determining what's clean and unclean, is loving. It's loving because it's true. And it's true because it's good. This is the godly boldness that Peter brings to bear when he sees all of Cornelius' household and all those who had been unclean, now declared clean, repent, fear the Lord, saved. He then makes the trek back to Jerusalem and he stands with bold confidence before those circumcision guys who are trying to take him to task. Godly boldness because it's rooted in the word of the Lord. Listen, I think that this is... uh, Timely. Because the world around us has presented us with a cheap counterfeit that is not godly confidence, it's so called self confidence. Self confidence may get you so far, but it will fail you in the end. It's cheap, it's flimsy. And no matter how much bravado you can muster, At the end of the day, you know the limits of your own self. Self Self-doubting, self-questioning. But if we seek out, like Peter, a joy-filled, gracious confidence, why, that's something that is eternal. It's exactly what this broken world around us needs, more Christians like that who are humbly, joyfully, confident and convinced that Jesus is alive, that God's word is best, and that the gospel remains the only power of God for salvation for all who believe. You see, friends, what I want you to see in this interaction with Peter is that his confidence, his hope, had nothing to do with himself. He had just been humbled. Back in chapter 10, he's starving hungry. He can't eat anything in Simon the Tanner's house. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to him, presents this banquet of unclean foods before him, says, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter himself opposes the Lord God. He then has to repent. Peter knows that he can have no confidence in himself. But he has found a rock-solid foundation of confidence that goes far beyond any strength he has. That's so great that he can face even such deep criticism as this. Well, friends, we see this in Peter, and I pray for it in each and every one of us today. Look at verses 4 to 18. I'm not going to take time to go over this because this is literally just a recapitulation of what happened uh, last week. It recounts Peter's experience back in chapter 10. It is worth noting that this moment in Scripture is so important that Scripture repeats it twice. Isn't that interesting? That it happened, then Peter bears witness to the fact that it happened and in great detail. Scripture has it twice. It's partly because of the power of this inflection point and this moment in God's saving purposes through history. God's saving purposes are now explicitly going out to the Gentiles. Very, very important. But I think it's also there to show each and every one of us the power of personal testimony. Peter seizes this opportunity of criticism and he uses it to bear witness to Christ. 
he takes this line of critical questioning from these circumcision party guys. And he doesn't take an approach of, oh, poor me, you know, they're always picking on me. Instead, he says, well, let me tell you exactly what happened so that you can see the power of Jesus to change lives. Look, I think in this personal testimony of Peter, we see another picture. We see a paradigm for how we can share our faith. So you're a Christian man or woman here this morning, all right? You probably have some sense that you'd really like to be better at telling other people about Jesus. Not if that's true. But maybe you feel paralyzed because you're like, I never went to seminary. I've never done courses in apologetics. What if they ask questions that I can't answer? Well, here we're reminded that we are not called to all be Christian apologists. We are not all called to have all the answers. We're actually called to do something far more powerful and impactful. To bear witness to Jesus through personal testimony. That's what Peter does here. He doesn't tell them, you know, well, here's the like abstract different ways and the principles and this is why it's legitimate. He just simply says, hey guys, here's what happened. And you know, friends, that's something that you can do too. When people bring criticism to bear on you, if you're like me, your tendency is to try to deal with it in like this heady, abstract way and show them the underpinnings of their worldview and all those things. What if you simply said to them, look, I used to be like this, but now I'm like this, and it's because of Jesus. Tell your personal testimony. What if you said things to them like, well, listen, I used to think in this way or act in this way, but now I think and act in this way, and it's because of Jesus. Behold God's power in Jesus to change lives. That's what Peter does here in verses 4 to 18. What's the result? Look at verse 15. Peter's recounting this, and he says, um, so back when I was in Caesarea, you know the account, uh, the picnic blanket drops down, there's all kinds of unclean things, don't make any distinction, all that stuff. Verse 15, he's saying to the guys, the um, criticizers that he's now talking to, he tells them, so when I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on all those guys in Cornelius' house. He says to the criticizers, crazy, right? Well, that's not in the text, but it's implied. He's like, yeah, guys, like I was, I was talking to them about, about this. I was talking about Jesus. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a situation where I'm surrounded by unclean Gentiles. You know those guys who have no claim to the kingdom of God or God's saving purposes, right? And, and I'm telling them about Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then Peter says to these Jewish guys, he goes, just like he did on us. In the beginning. This is Peter recounting what happened. And, and what Peter's getting at here would not have been lost on his audience in chapter 11. These guys were like religious, you know, they were um, Christians. Peter's telling them, look, I proclaimed Jesus to them, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, just like the Holy Spirit fell on us back in Acts chapter 2. That's what he's saying. What happened back in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on that group of Jews on that first Pentecost? Well, in chapter 2, verse 36, it says that the entire crowd that was watching when the first time that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Jews, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says, they were all cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Back to chapter 11, verse 15 to 18. And we see that when the Holy Spirit was poured out now on the Gentiles in Cornelius' household, the exact same thing happens. Same progression. Only this time to the Gentiles. Verse 16. Peter puts a fine point on the entire process. And he says, look, the justification for what I did and what I saw happen when those Gentiles were saved is rooted in the very word of God. Verse 16, Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord. See that? Peter says, I I was convicted, guys. I realized I had to go as far as God's word, but I couldn't go any further. That's what he's saying. Verse 17, Peter says, um, Then I stood in dread. Who was I to stand in God's way? These guys are believing in the Lord Jesus. I'm not going to get in the way. They received the same Holy Spirit. I'm not going to deny them. All right, so Peter's conviction and confidence is in the word of the Lord, not in himself. Peter has a desire to join God in his good purposes. And Peter uses the power of a personal testimony. Let's look next at verses 19 to 26 and see the growth of the church. So now the church is grappling with this truth at the earliest stages. They're seeing that the good news of God's saving work in Jesus is not just for this small, ethnically defined huddle of Jews, but it's for the people of all nations. All nations. Look, if it wasn't for this important moment in salvation history, Christianity would have never left the Roman province of Palestine. This is the reason that any of us who are non-Jews have any claim to be Christians. Because Jesus said, I have many sheep who are not yet of this fold. There are those in all nations whom the Father set his affection on from before time, who were saved by the shed blood of the Son, by whom the Holy Spirit causes them to come to life, repent of their sin, and trust in Jesus from every nation. Not just Jews. May have been a shocking thing to the early church at this point, But it shouldn't have been. Do you remember Jesus commissioning in Matthew 28? Before he ascended into heaven, he said to the apostles when he was sending them out, he said, go therefore and make disciples only of a select group of nations. Is that what he said? What did he say? What did he say? Of all nations. That's right. See, The church is simply doing what the Lord Jesus Christ commanded them to do. They're not making it up. They're not fudging it on the edges. They're not trying to change the message to accommodate culture. That's not what's happening here. They're just obeying the Lord. Jesus commissioned them to go to all nations, to preach to everyone as though they are elect, to declare the promises of God indiscriminately to everyone knowing that only those whom the Father set his affection upon will respond with faith and repentance and new life. All nations, indiscriminately. The gospel grows. All right, verse 19. So those who were scattered by the persecution that arose over Stephen had traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So we see here that Um, after Stephen's stoning and death, there was a great scattering, a great dispersion among the Christians who moved out from Jerusalem. They traveled all over the place. By the time we get here to Acts chapter 11, they've reached really far places. But they're still exclusively preaching the gospel only to Jews. But then we're told that there are some men, these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they got it. They were preaching the gospel to the Hellenists. You know what a Hellenist is? It's a Greek. It's a Gentile. 
They had taken the good news to the Gentiles who were in the city of Antioch. And what was their message? Look at verse 20. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Up to this point in the accounts in Acts, it's notable that the preaching was of Jesus Christ. Here, it's something different. At the moment when the preaching goes from the Jews to the Gentiles, we are now told that these men preach the Lord Jesus. And there's something to be said for that. There's something here of cultural sensitivity and appropriateness. You see, when the apostles and the believers and the brothers were preaching to the Jews, they preached, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament because their audience was well-versed in those terms. And so they preached, Jesus is the Christ. But now that the gospel is going not just to Jews but to Gentiles, these Hellenists had little to no exposure to the Old Testament. And so these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene who were preaching to the Gentiles, they culturally appropriated the gospel without ever stepping outside the bounds of the truth of Jesus, no longer preaching exclusively Jesus is Christ, Jesus is Lord. In a way that the Gentiles could understand and relate to. Here, I want you to see that it's important for us to apply the truth of Jesus' lordship. You know, you may be a Christian, and you find that um, you experience little to no persecution for your preaching of Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord. You would say to me, R.D., I go around my workplace and everyone just receives it with joy. I never have a single debate, a never single argument. I'm never uninvited from any groups because of my proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Well, either you're pretty awesome or you're missing something. Okay? It's, it's possible for us to preach Jesus, truths of who he is, in a way that's so abstract and disconnected from application to day-to-day issues in life that the offense of the stumbling block of the foolishness is lost. Instead, when we culturally appropriate the truth of the lordship of Jesus, when we apply it to -to day-to-day issues and trends and lives, Some will respond by bowing their knee humbly to him and being saved, but it will also be met with hostility. you got to apply the truth of Jesus, not just declare it. Verse 21. Okay, so they're preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, they're preaching it to Gentiles in Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, the hand of the Lord in Scripture is either an instrument of judgment or of blessing. Here, clearly, it's a picture of blessing. Because that's the kind of preaching that the Lord Jesus blesses. When we, with wisdom and grace, but confidence and courage speak to people and to the issues of the day and declare there is a Lord and his name is Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God does his work. We're told that in Antioch, a great number of those believed and turned to the Lord. You see that in verse 21? And friends, for us, it's just as simple. We preach Jesus as Lord in a way that connects his lordship to daily life. And we will see the church grow. Okay, let me be really clear about this. When I'm talking about the church growing, I'm not talking about increasing the numbers of bums in pews. That's not what I'm talking about. That's something deeper. Every Christian man and woman should long for the church to grow. Here's why. 
because we're convinced that every person we meet is going to die. And that every person that we meet who is going to die will go to an eternity in hell apart from the saving work of Jesus. We're convinced of what Scripture tells us, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How are they going to hear? How are they going to believe if they don't hear it? And how are they going to hear it if nobody tells them? Look, if you're a Christian, you don't want friends, family, neighbors, strangers to ever go to hell without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want the church to grow. And so you seize the opportunities to preach the Lord Jesus out of love for your friends. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 22. So now the Lord Jesus is being preached to the Gentiles in Antioch. Great numbers of people are believing and turning to the Lord, and word gets back to Jerusalem. You can imagine the crisis in the church in Jerusalem, right? They're like, oh, this thing is like catching on like wildfire. First, it's those guys at Cornelius' house, those Gentiles. Now, these guys in Antioch, like, what's next? Is this gospel for everyone? We got to get to the bottom of this. So, what do they do? They send trusted Barnabas to Antioch to check things out. And there's no better person to send than Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement. This guy is not part of the party of circumcision. He's not a legalist. He's going to go there and he's going to have open eyes and open heart that want to see what the Lord God is doing if this is legitimate. And so they send Barnabas. Barnabas, whose character in verse 24 is well known, it says he was a good man, he was full of the Spirit, and he was full of faith. Barnabas goes from Jerusalem to Antioch to check things out because he's a trusted brother. Verse 23, he arrives in Antioch and it says that he saw the grace of God. What an interesting turn of phrase. Have you ever thought about the fact that the most important things in the world and in life are things that you cannot literally see? Things like love and trust like, you can't actually see them. Do you know why? Because they're not things. And the same is true with the grace of God. You can't literally see the grace of God, like, in the air, right? It's not like a smokescreen or something. But in another sense, you can see the evidence of the grace of God at work. That's what Barnabas saw when he showed up in Antioch. I imagine that Barnabas showed up in Antioch, and he took a look at these Gentile believers, and he's like, yep, that's the real thing, man. I don't know. He's like, I see God's grace at work in these people, and there's no other way to explain it than that God is doing the same thing with the Gentiles that he was doing with us. He poured out his spirit. He caused them to believe. He caused them to be saved. He caused them to be born again. Same thing. I see evidence of the grace of God. And you know, friends, when I read that in this passage, I thought, how thankful I am to see evidence of the grace of God at work here at St. George's. So many over the last few years have been saved, baptized, growing in deeper love and trust in Jesus, applying and appropriating the lordship of Jesus to every area of their lives, bowing their knee to him as Lord and finding hope and strength and confidence and joy. Those are all things that we couldn't fabricate. They don't happen at the Rotary Club. Those are the evidence of the grace of God at work. Praise the Lord. Well, that's what he saw when he showed up in Antioch. And in verse 23, he exhorted them to remain faithful and steadfast in this purpose. I thought immediately when I was reading this of the batch of people that we just recently baptized at Burlington Beach. What a glorious day that was. I thought, what a great encouragement for you. 
Look, if you're part of that baptism group or you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ most recently, let me exhort you in those two things. Remain faithful and steadfast in purpose. Remain faithful doesn't mean get your stuff together and stop sinning and never doubt. Remaining faithful means remember constantly that you are saved not because of the strength of your faith, but because of the strength of the object of your faith, and he will never let you go. Foster and nurture a faith in Jesus. Remain faithful. And remain steadfast in that. Because there is an enemy of your soul who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He roars, he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he could kill. So that's what Barnabas told them. Verse 25, so there's this bunch of Gentile Christians in Antioch and Barnabas is like, yep, it's the real thing. He's like, yeah, so what are we going to do with them now? Who's going to disciple them and who's going to pastor them? That was Barnabas' thought. Well, in verse 25, it says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. You imagine this. Barnabas is like, yep, it's the real thing. These guys have been born again. They've been saved. Now they need a pastor. Who am I going to call? Not the Ghostbusters, but Saul of Tarsus. Called by God on the road to Damascus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So Barnabas um, loads up and heads to Tarsus looking for Saul. By this point in the story, um, you know, we're only 11 chapters in and you can read this up to this point in just, you know, probably under an hour or so, maybe a little more than an hour if you're reading through Acts. But you have to pause to remember that what has transpired from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 11 is actually spread out over about seven years. Seven years has, has passed. So Saul of Tarsus, he is in hiding somewhere in his hometown. Because of his conversion and his profession of Jesus Christ, because he's relented in persecuting the Christians, his family have disinherited him and all of his religious community have disowned him. He's in Tarsus. He's all by himself. He's so well hidden that actually the Greek literal word that's captured here that we translate that Barnabas went looking for in the original Greek it carries the nuance of searched for with difficulty. It wasn't easy to find him. That's just a good thing that God sent Barnabas to go looking for Saul and not for not me. I, I might be the most useless looking for person in the planet. If you don't believe me, ask Monica. I can like open the fridge and be like, there's no ketchup in the fridge. And she's like, it's in the door. And I'm like, no, it isn't. And she's like, yes, it is. And then eventually she'll come over and be like, uh. But what Barnabas undertook here was like a major project. He's like, these guys are Christians in Antioch and they need a pastor. I'm going to go find Saul. And he searched for him diligently and it was very difficult. Verse 26, he found Saul and he brought him back to Antioch. And so get this, Saul became the first pastor in Antioch, the very first group of people to ever be called Christians. Pretty cool. And what did Barnabas and Saul do with these guys for the very first year? Verse 26. For a whole year, they met with the church in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas, and they taught a great many people. You know, friends, this is the greatest need for Christians new and old, to be taught the word of God. It's why at St. George's we give a central place to the expositional preaching of God's word. 
We don't do topical stuff where we say, well, I'm going to pick a topic and then find a proof text. We try to get into the Bible and follow the warp and woof, the logic of Scripture, convinced that it is God's Word, and we all need to be taught it. The church here is growing. How does it grow? Well, in one sense, it grows by this key figure named Barnabas. But, you know, if we stopped the sermon there, this would be an anemic sermon. Because, by and large, for the entire course of this sermon, it has been about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Do this, don't do that. Well, you know, sermons like that, sermons that never declare the glory of Jesus, are useless. In this account, we come to see that the church grows by the convictions and actions of men like Barnabas. But we also see that the church grows ultimately under the directing and guiding of the greater Barnabas. You see, Barnabas is something of an analogy or of a picture. He is called the son of encouragement, but when we read about him and his actions and his heart and his desire and his character, he points us ahead to the greater Barnabas, the one who is the true son of encouragement, the one who declared, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will ever prevail against it. Verse 24. We're told Barnabas was a good man, that he was truly full of the Spirit, that he was faithful. But even Barnabas, I'm sure, had his faults and his failures. If you don't believe me, when you get to heaven, ask his wife. But he points us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only man who was ever truly good. He's the only one who was truly full of the Spirit. He's the only one who was faithful, without wavering, without failure, faithful to the end. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of encouragement. Well, in a temporal sense, the church in Antioch is growing because of the hand of Barnabas. When in fact, it's because of the hand of the Lord, the greater Barnabas. There's one other place that we see Jesus in this passage. Verse 25 tells us that Barnabas set out for Tarsus to find Saul. And he did so with great difficulty. The church is growing. And it's because the greater Barnabas, the Lord Jesus Christ, sets out to find people like you. People like me. And he does so with great difficulty and at great cost. The cost of his own life. He does so. Barnabas went out and did so to find Saul to bring him into the church in Antioch. The Lord Jesus Christ seeks you out and searches out after you with great difficulty and at great cost to bring you into the church, into the family of God. Not just St. George's, but for all of eternity. Praise God. That's where we see the greater Barnabas in this, the Lord Jesus Christ. Still happening today. All right, I want to close very quickly with verses 27 to 30. Here, um, yeah, I'm just going to cut. I'm going to cut right to it. So um, up till now, we've seen generosity of spirit. Okay, we've seen Barnabas functioning with a generous spirit. Here what happens is that prophets rise up, a guy named Agabus, and he tells the church in Antioch, look, there's a famine coming. 
and the church in Jerusalem is going to be in great need. And so these brand new Christians in Antioch, they pool together their resources, they give generously of their money and of their grain and who knows what else. They pile it all up together. They then give that money to Barnabas and they say, Barnabas, take this to those Christians who are going to be in need in Jerusalem. We've seen generosity of spirit in Barnabas. We now see generosity with money in the earliest Christians. This sense of mutual responsibility where Christians feel responsible to and for one another. When any time that we see in the church or in the world a generous act or a generous person, it's always something that we value, right? I think even the most foul-hearted person would still say that generosity is a virtue. Something that we all want to grow in. So how do you get there? You don't become more generous by trying to be more generous. That might result in a brief season of giving more money, but it doesn't actually get to generosity. Because generosity is a matter of the heart, and it requires a change of heart if it's going to endure and last. Christian man or woman, if you want to see generosity in your life, you become more generous by remembering how generous God has been to you in Jesus. That's what's going to change your heart from being selfish and self-righteous and entitled and clinging to remembering that he who freely gave his life for you and died while you were yet sinners. Embracing that kind of generosity will make you generous in return. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithful ministry and witness of Peter and Barnabas and Saul. We thank you that they do serve in some sense as an example for us today, but we thank you that ultimately we as Christians and the ongoing life of your church is built up and safe and secure in Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Would you once again today convince us and convict our hearts of these truths so that we can respond generously to you and to others that we would be wise as students of the word, that we would never call unclean the things that you call clean, but that we would never call clean the things that you call unclean. Convinced that your word is best. And so, Lord, bring many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.